Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Remember, if you've got to step away from your radio or you're headed into work, you can still hear the full edition of Detroit Today. All you've got to do is go to iTunes and download the Detroit Today podcast. You can take us with you, and you can listen to us when you are ready. I'm going to start the show today talking about this week's horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas and the many larger conversations that it has sparked. One debate that has become front and center again is about defining these kinds of attacks. Most media organizations have so far stayed away from calling this an act of terrorism. They say terrorism inherently has an explicit political motive, and so far, we really don't know much about the shooter's motive or whether he has political affiliations or leanings of any kind. But other people are saying that attacks carried out by people of color are often quickly labeled acts of terror and that we often stay away from that kind of language when the attacker or attackers are white. And is it fair to say that the very act of purchasing, stockpiling, and using these kinds of firearms against a crowd of innocent civilians is an inherently political act? That's where we want to start the show uh, this morning. And we want to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about the, the shootings in Vegas? Do you think that because of the nature of them, because of the way that they were carried out, because of the number of people who were killed or injured, that they qualify as terrorism and that you don't need the political context or to understand the political context in order to make that determination. I have to be honest here. For me, the the political context of the gun conversation in this country, I think, helps qualify this as terrorism. Think about all the money that the NRA spends making sure that these kinds of weapons are as easily available as they are. Think of all the politicians who take that money and either pass or don't pass legislation that would, uh, that would curb access to these weapons. Think of the way that we regulate the manufacture and distribution of weapons of mass destruction, which is what these were uh, in this country. All of that is political. All of that is a political imperative to make sure that things like this are possible. And so when somebody goes out to do it, how could it not be terrorism? I've been thinking about that question for the past couple of days, and we want to talk about it for most of the hour today. Here now, though, to put this in sort of a research context, in a policy context, is Peter Trumbor. He is an associate professor of political science at Oakland University. He researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. So let's start with this this definition of terrorism in your classes, in your research. Is there is there a way that you define terrorism that would put what we saw in Las Vegas outside the circle of that definition? Yes. So the first and, and foremost thing is that any definition of terrorism that, that we use either in, in social science research or in our teaching on the topic is going to emphasize the, the political or ideological motivation of the perpetrators. And that's absolutely essential. When we think about what terrorism means uh, as a form of political action, we place it on a continuum from, from nonviolent forms of, of political organizing and seeking political change 
to the other end, uh, the violent use of such means. And, and terrorism falls into that, that sort of last category. So we talk about terrorism as inherently political. We talk about terrorism as being designed to influence a wider audience beyond the, the specific victims of any given incident or event. The idea is to intimidate, to coerce, or to propagandize. But in general, those efforts are targeted not at the people who are directly affected, but by everybody else who might watch. Right. Uh, the the civilian aspect of the victims, I think, that's also uh, yeah, is, that's also the case. Is one of the things that that we talk about when we talk about terrorism. But but let me ask you this, or I guess let me pose a theory that. Somebody who goes and stockpiles semi-automatic or automatic weapons, goes to a hotel with those weapons and shoots 586 people in three minutes, is is not necessarily acting in a in a political way, but they are acting on the political, uh, uh, I guess, imperative of those who would have. All of those things easy to do, easily easily achievable in our society. In other words, so the NRA. The NRA spends millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, making sure that there are not regulations that would prevent the manufacture or the distribution of the guns that this shooter in Las Vegas used. Sure. Uh, we, have, we have members of Congress who take those millions of dollars and either pass or don't pass legislation that uh, that affects how easy it is to get these guns for for people in America. Uh, we have we have courts that uh, refuse to, uh, to attach liability to gun manufacturers. Uh, again, very heavily influenced by the NRA to do so. Uh, to say, hey, you can go out and make a weapon that is this dangerous that has only one purpose. And somebody can use it, and you don't have to worry about that coming back on you in any sort of financial or other uh, liable way. Those are those are all political imperatives and political acts. And so, when somebody acts on the context that they create, how is that not also political? Okay, so I, I think the distinction you have to draw is between what is the intention of of the perpetrator, and then. On our side, how does any act, regardless of the motivation, play into a larger political context and a larger political debate, which is what, you, what, is what you're describing? Um, the fact that this has political ramifications, the fact that this occurs within a political context uh, of an inability and an unwillingness of the United States to, to grapple with issues of, of the easy access of the weapons that, that mass killers can, can utilize – uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person pulling the trigger in the Mandalay Bay is driven by those imperatives himself. Um, what you're implying is that, that Stephen Paddock is either an ardent gun rights activist or an ardent gun rights opponent, and this act is intended to specifically influence uh, the public debate on that topic. You know, until we know that to be sure, we can't call what he did and why he did it an act of terrorism, regardless of whether it informs the the subsequent debate or fails to inform a subsequent debate on the topic. So, do you see the distinction I'm drawing? Yeah, I, I do see the distinction. Uh, although, I guess, uh, I guess my question is whether the motivation of the actor is what's important in defining terrorism, or 
the the effect of that actor's uh, uh, behavior on the political context. So so if if a, a suicide bomber walks into a market in Jerusalem uh, but has no affiliation with or no real uh, uh, attachment to uh, a terrorist organization but is doing the things that that terrorist organization wants done and and they the act that they commit helps raise the profile of that terrorist organization and for instance uh, maybe get some support other people to support it that would we wouldn't debate about we, we we wouldn't debate about the motive of the actor there we would talk about the context wouldn't we well i, I would say to you that it depends upon the perspective you're bringing to any particular event uh, as a social scientist, as somebody who studies this, uh, we, we would actually look at what are the attachments of any given perpetrator? What do we know about that individual's motivation? Uh, what do we know about any kind of connections they might have to, to political or other movements in which these kinds – or exposure uh, to these kinds of movements in which those sorts of ta- tactics have been employed? Uh, from a, a policy perspective, it also makes a difference in terms of helping us think about how to identify the conditions that lead to these kinds of, of events, mm-hmm. uh, what we can do in terms of ameliorating or, or tempering those conditions, what we can do in terms of response uh, when events like this happen, and all those kinds of things, whether or not these events can be prevented. Now, some of these issues are going to be similar whether the perpetrator is politically or ideologically motivated or not. For example, uh, easy access to high-capacity firearms easy access to uh, lethal ammunition, all of that makes any of these kinds of actions in the United States easier. Whether you are a deranged mass killer like James Holmes in Aurora, Colorado, or Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris in Columbine, Mm -hmm. Stephen Paddock in in Las Vegas, or uh, the San Bernardino shooters, or the Pulse nightclub shooter. I mean, it's the, the access to the weapons facilitates either idiosyncratic action or politically driven action. And that's something that we can address regardless of whether or not we define any particular incident as an act of terrorism. But you're saying that it's important to draw that distinction. Absolutely. Uh, even, even though the context makes all of it possible, each individual inc- incident has its own uh, particular context about why the person did what they did. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guest is Peter Trumbor. He's an associate professor of political science at Oakland University. He researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. We're talking about the shootings in Las Vegas this week. Uh, 586 people wounded when Stephen Paddock went to the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Vegas and opened fire on a crowd below at a concert. Is what he did terrorism? Even though we don't know what his motive was, we don't know of any affiliation he might have with any political group, does that mean that he's a lone wolf, for instance, or just uh, someone acting on their own? Uh, Or do you think that the act itself and the effect of the act itself makes it terrorism. We want to hear from you for sure. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will try to work your comments 
into the conversation. Uh, Peter, I want to talk uh, briefly about uh, about race, uh, because uh, I think that that uh, as with all issues in America, there is some racial dimension, I think, uh, lurking in the background, even if it's not the primary driver of, of, of what we're talking about. But uh, there is this concern that that when an African-American does something like this, we describe it in really different terms than we do with someone like Stephen Paddock. And, and if you look at the coverage of Stephen Paddock over the last uh, few days, there, there are lots of things about his background that are being uh, uh, sort of uh, not, not celebrated, but certainly uh, highlighted by media organizations that you'd never hear about uh, an African-American who did this. And, and, you know, there are words that are not being used here, right? Uh, the, the word thug, for instance, uh, the, 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 the looking into, uh, you know, whether this person listened to thug rap music or, or violent rap music. I mean, there is a dimension to that. And on the international level, I think there's also uh, a, a reluctance in many instances to attach the word terrorist uh, to white actors. Middle Eastern folks, I think, are much quicker to, to draw that label. Uh, uh, how do we sort through the racial dimensions of this uh, in your policy and research context sure. in order to, to come up with, as you point out, the right conclusions about who does this and why? Okay, so I, I, first of all, I would absolutely agree with you. There is, uh, there is a racial dimension to this. Uh, it's a, and I think, frankly, the problem isn't in uh, the, the academic community, and I don't think the problem is in necessarily the policy community. Uh, I would argue to you the problem is, is one of media narrative. Um, there was research that came out over the summer from a, a, a team of scholars at Georgia State University that showed that something like uh, that terrorist incidents in the United States that can be attributed to, uh, even if it's false attribution, to uh, Muslim or jihadist-inspired sort of ideology, but that's something like uh, 400 times more likely, or gets 400 times more media coverage than similar events that are carried out by non-jihadis, non-sort of uh, uh, Islamist-inspired actors. Uh, That's a media problem. The, the very same acts uh, are terrorism, uh, regardless of the specific identity of the perpetrator. And let me give you a, a good example of the phenomenon you're talking about. Uh-huh. If you take a look at the media coverage that surrounded uh, Dylan Roof and uh, his attack on, the, on the, the prayer meeting at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in, in Charleston, what yes. you see is that there was uh, uh, the, the, the kind of media narrative that you're describing, where Roof is, is talked about as, is he mentally ill? Uh, was he um, depressed? You know, all of these things without saying the, the T word. When we know from looking at his, his social media uh, postings uh, that, that he was absolutely inspired by a desire to trigger a race war, uh, it took days before the media latched on to the, the reality that what Dylan Roof was was a white supremacist terrorist. Right. Meanwhile, Pulse Nightclub, it was immediate. That was immediately described yes. as an act of jihadi-inspired terrorism, of ISIS-inspired terrorism. Uh, there is, uh, but again, if you, if you ask somebody like me who, who studies this stuff, I, I would hope to say scientifically, those two incidents are considered more or less the same 
in terms of being acts of terror. Right. The, and from a policy perspective, in terms of, of what do we do to counter radicalization, uh, how do we identify people who are susceptible to ideological manipulation that can move them into acting violently in pursuit of a political objective? Uh, the, the dynamics of radicalization are very, very similar, whether we're talking about the white supremacist community or we're talking about those who become inspired by jihadist ideologies. Uh, from, so from a policy perspective, those two events are, are, are similar enough right. that we can talk about them in the same way. Yeah. So the real issue here is one of, frankly, of media narrative. And, and I think you're probably better positioned as a, as a journalist to to ask the question of, of why the media portrays these so differently. Right. Uh, and we know that that has, has implications. There's research that I'm doing with a, a student of mine in which we look at the, how public opinion responds to terrorist events. And what we find in that research is it's not events that public opinion responds to at all. It's, it's media coverage. If events being carried out by, by whites, by white supremacists, or, or other um, sort of non-jihadis are not being described in the media as terrorism, and public responds to media coverage when it thinks about how serious the problem of terrorism is, mm -hmm. then those kind of events aren't going to register for the public. And we see this in our research, that public concern about terrorism spikes after Pulse, but not after Mother Emanuel. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have, a, you have bombs being thrown through the windows of mosques in Minnesota, which aren't being described as acts of terrorism. You have plots in Kansas to set off simultaneous car bombs at an apartment complex housing Somali immigrants, and that's not being described in most of the media coverage of that case as a potential act of terrorism. So the issue here isn't, I think, one of social science or even of, of policy. The issue here is one of media response and media narrative. It's the way we it's the way we characterize it and, and disseminate right. information about yes. it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Peter Trumbor. He's an associate professor of political science at Oakland University. He researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. We're talking about terrorism in the context of the shootings in Las Vegas this week. 586 some people. Uh, shot or killed uh, by one person who goes to the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas and opens fire on a concert crowd down below. Is this an act of terrorism or is this uh, not uh, the, the same thing as politically motivated violence that we see both domestically and internationally? Uh, call us and tell us what you think. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today uh, and we will put uh, we will uh, get your comments uh, going here in the conversation. Peter, before I, I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about about um, uh, the gun issue here and and how we deal with it. I know this is not necessarily your your area of of expertise, but um, one of the things that that I always think about when I think about terrorism or terror instant instances uh, is how easy we make it in this country for people to do that. And I guess I'm a little surprised sometimes that we don't see more incidents like this on an international scale. In other words, right. if I were if I were a jihadist uh, terrorist, why wouldn't I 
stockpile a bunch of weapons in in America and and go to the top of a building and shoot a bunch of people. I mean, that seems uh, the 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 easiest way to, to 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 carry out those kind of things in this country. It doesn't happen though. Uh, it it seems to happen, frankly, more more frequently with uh, people who live here, people who were born here, who Correct. who do that. Right. Um, I think there's a couple of things that we need to be aware of, and I think that work to to our advantage as a as a country and as a society. Uh, for the most part, um, Muslims in this country, uh, whether they are are, are native born or are immigrants or are, are the are children of, of, of immigrant families, have been remarkably successful at assimilating into the mainstream, mm-hmm. uh, and and those communities have been very resistant to the kind of radicalization that we've seen in. Uh, in parts of Europe, in, in France, in Belgium, and elsewhere. And and that has made a real difference for us. Uh, we are only recently seeing, and, and by recently I mean within the last, you know, two or three years, mm-hmm. uh, examples of, of American Muslims who have become susceptible and have acted upon the the kinds of, of messaging that have caused real problems in other parts of the world. And And I think that that's one explanation mm-hmm. for why we haven't seen this. But I would also tell you this easy availability of incredibly lethal uh, firepower in the United States is one reason why, why people like me and, and other scholars, other observers of, of, of the phenomenon of terrorism uh, have argued for a long time that it's really just a matter of, of when it, it's going to happen here. It's not, you know, when something happens like, uh, like the Charlie Hebdo attacks in, in, in sure. France, you know, the, I get asked by students, I get asked by media, you know, can this happen here? And the answer is, of course it can happen here. In fact, it's much easier for that kind of thing to happen here. And uh, to our credit, both in terms of, of uh, the way our society has responded to some of the, the, the pressures that, that lead to radicalization, the effectiveness, frankly, of our, of our uh, national security services, mm-hmm. um, those have made a real difference, right? You know, we can we can talk about the intrusiveness of, of law enforcement. We can talk about some of the, and I think we we ought to talk about some of the, the civil liberties implications of uh, the sort of the, the federal uh, anti-terrorism policies within the United States and, and the implications of the Patriot Act and things like that. But I think we also have to say that some of those things have been effective in identifying and 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 foreclosing plots. Right. Um, whether they're perpetrated by, by jihadists or, or white supremacists. So I think that we've been uh, more effective for a combination of reasons, and that's, and that's why we haven't seen more of the kinds of, of tragic events, um, politically motivated tragic events, that, that, we, that we could. Yeah. Okay, Peter Trumbor, Associate Professor of Political Science at Oakland University, researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. Thanks very much for being with us on You're very Detroit well. Today. All right, let's take some calls here. A lot of people want to participate in this conversation. No surprise there. Let's go to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, welcome to Detroit yeah. Today. Hey, go ahead. Stephen, I don't know. I, I love listening to you, and I like the story, but the, the subject matter. But i got to ask a couple of questions. Number one, what was Timothy McVeigh? And number two, do I need to keep my Funk and Wagnalls in my Oxford English Dictionary <laughs> at hand to take and define these terms, or do I just look at the blood on the ground? Yeah, no, I think that's a really uh, question there, Phyllis. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that the effect of these actions plays a lot of 
uh, plays a big role in in helping us define it. That's how I would see it. But as you point out, you know, the OED would would disagree with me, and so would Funk and Wagnalls. I mean, words have meanings that that we try to respect and and try to sort of agree on as a way of coming together um, uh, around you know common understandings. But it is really hard. I I'm with you. It is really hard to watch something like what happened in Las Vegas this week and not call it terrorism. I just don't, even even with everything that Peter Trumbore was saying there, it's very hard for me to, to, to not ascribe that kind of word to this brand of violence. Uh, and, and I think, as you point out, look at the blood on the ground. Look at the pictures, the really, really vivid pictures of the aftermath of this shooting that we have seen. It, it, it's impossible, I think, uh, in in cultural terms, to say that this is anything but terrorism. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about whether or not we should be calling the attack in Vegas terrorism. Uh, we're going to talk with Khalid Badoun, associate professor of law at University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, he examines Islamophobia from a legal, race-based, and intersectional perspective. Uh, stay with us, and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Kenneth at Wayne State, Jeff in Ann Arbor, Layla in Royal Oak, and Mason in Ferndale. We will get to you. WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Two minutes past the hour, and you are listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest now is Khalid Beydoun. He is an associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy. He examines Islamophobia from a legal, race-based, and intersectional perspective. He recently wrote in the Washington Post about our subject today. Uh, how do we define acts of extreme violence like what we saw in Las Vegas with Stephen Paddock this week uh, in a in a uh, piece called titled Lone Wolf our stunning double standard when it comes to race and religion Bedouin says what we knew about Stephen Paddock in the immediate hours after the attack is no more or less than we know about Muslim attackers after those events and even ISIS claims responsibility in Vegas and yet it's still a wait-and-see approach to Stephen Paddock's motive, whereas a Muslim attacker would almost immediately be cited as, quote, likely terrorist by some media organizations and officials. Khalid Benoun, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, in the previous segment with uh, Peter Trumbor, we talked some about these double standards that we apply in these in these situations. I brought up race, uh, black, white uh, kinds of distinctions and, and the way that we deal with these things. We also talked a little about the stigma that um, that Muslims face in, in the society when when these things happen. Um, uh, talk about, though, the talk about how that double standard plays out in your community. I mean, how does that feel when something like this happens and you see someone like Stephen Paddock yeah. being treated differently? And we all can look at that and say, I think, oh, my goodness, yeah. this would not 
be this would not be discussed this way if this person were black or Muslim. Yeah, we can engage with the definitions of terrorism that are uh, you know employed here stateside and have a technical analysis of whether this is terrorism or not. Um, I'm less concerned with that, and I'm more concerned with the presumptions that are assigned to racial and religious identity. Uh, we see how um, various instances where the mass shooters uh, are white, right? You have you know essential uh, essentially exemption exemptions that are applied, right? Exemptions like the lone wolf, uh, exemptions like the individual is insane, um, exemptions in this instance uh, where the sheriff called him a localer. And these exemptions are racial proxies, right? They're assigned specifically and exclusively to white mass shooters. However, you know, these same presumptions, actually the opposite presumptions are applied when the actor is Muslim, Middle Eastern, Arab, and so on, right? Um, even when there's tenuous evidence that that individual, um, we can talk about Mateen in Orlando, we can talk about the two uh, shooters in San Bernardino from a couple of years ago. There was really weak, if, if not no evidence at all, that tied these individuals to ISIS or any transnational terror network. However, it was the religious and racial identity. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about religion here, it's important to identify that Islam is racialized, right? right? So yes. beyond just the religion, there's kind of a racialization of the faith Absolutely. Uh, that we must point out. Um, but similar set of facts, um, why aren't those individuals called lone wolves or local <laughs> um, elements in the same way that Paddock was in Las Vegas? Yeah, and there, there's always this question of radicalization, right? How did yep. this person, how did this Muslim person become radicalized? How did yep. this black person get radicalized? I have not heard a single person talk about radicalization of Stephen Paddock, even though, let's say, let's say he had no political motive. Let's say he had no affiliation mm -hmm. with a political group. What he did is radical and radically violent and there is some there is some process by which he got to that space by his own brother's account uh, you mm -hmm. know this is someone who interacted with him a lot who says gee this seems to come out of nowhere that would never be accepted as an ex explanation if he were not white no exactly and i think that you know it's important to, to also understand the racialization and the racial aspect of radicalization right radicalization is this new uh, counter-terror concept uh, parlance that's been adopted in 2011 after a program called Countering Violent Extremism was adopted by the Obama administration, right? However, it's only applied um, to Muslims, brown, and black people. And the idea is that individuals are inspired, right, or, or kind of moved by uh, a terror network. Um, or co-opted, even. Co-opted, exactly. Yeah. yeah, by some sort of element. However, this language of radicalization is never applied when... The actor is white, right? Even though you have in Nevada, you, we must remember, is a hotbed for uh, these militia groups, um, white supremacist groups, secessionist movements, and so on. Um, from the area in which Paddock comes from, Mesquite, Nevada, 80 miles east of Las Vegas. However, there's no theory, no no discussion of the possibility that he was radicalized or inspired by you know any outfit or radical ideology that might have might have led him to do what he did. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. If you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, go to Twitter, and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Lots of people already participating in this conversation. Uh, let's go to Mason in Ferndale. Mason, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, guys. Hey, um, Stephen, always like hearing your show. Thank um, you. 
This is actually something to what the previous caller said, uh, the associate professor at Oakland University. Um, I was watching segments from Fox last night and this morning, and they were talking about, I don't like using this word, but they didn't know what groups to hate. They didn't use the words terrorists. They didn't use any other words that, like you said, previous numerous acts of violence were labeled as. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into gun control because that's a whole can of worms all on its own. But my whole thing was this guy had numerous acts of terror that he committed on Sunday. Mm -hmm. But and as you said, again, there's been little media coverage. No one knew how to label this guy. And don't go for a label. Just tell it like it is. Right. Right. This guy did something wrong. And tell it. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of linguistic gymnastics, I guess, is maybe the way you would describe it, that go on when when these things happen with people trying to go out of their way not to ascribe these words like terror or terrorism to these kinds of shootings. And I think that's what you're, you're noticing there, Mace. You know, come out and say what it is. Describe it the way it is. It's not different in the way that uh, it impacts us. It is not different in the way that it shakes society and our sense of civility. Uh, doesn't that make it? Uh, doesn't that make it terrorism? Uh, thank you very much for that call and the comments. Mason Hugo on Twitter says, "Isn't terrorism defined as using violence to achieve achieve political goals? If that's the case, then we just don't know, and we may never know." Uh, Khalid, I said to Peter Trumbor that, as far as I'm concerned. The free flow of guns in this society is a political issue. It's a it's an issue that that there's a very powerful lobby that spends millions of dollars trying to make sure that it's never attacked. Uh, you know, it has control of our political institutions. How you know, I, I get that motive has something to do with it, and maybe this mm-hmm. person's motive was not to to advocate for the free flow of guns, but. He was he was able to do what he did because of that free flow. I I think disconnecting those two things is probably a mistake. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I'll be frank. I don't like the existing definitions of terrorism that are on the books. There are two uh, definitions that are primarily used um, by by DHS um, and other agencies in the state. For you know, obviously uh, on the foreign policy end, you have definitions of terrorism and so on. Um, but I think it's really important. I'm not sure if your previous speaker actually noted this, but it is intentional that these definitions of terrorism are vague, ambiguous, and amorphous. There's a reason behind that because it essentially equips uh, law enforcement and counterterror law enforcement with the ability to essentially pick and choose what kind of cases they want to classify, pursue, and prosecute as terrorists. Right. So um, I'm one who you know thinks that these definitions are are problematic and yeah. facilitate the kind of cherry picking we see. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to Layla in Royal Oak. Layla, welcome to Detroit today. Uh, yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, that was very interesting uh, what you just said in terms of the definitions of terrorism. Um, I guess my concern is that, and I've heard this in the in, in on NPR actually, that if a formal classification of terrorism was made to this particular mass shooting, um, then it would bring this mass shooting and others like it under the purview of the Patriot Act. And um, if that's true, then what kind of implications would 
that have? Hmm. And is that something that we would necessarily want? Uh, that's an interesting. That's an interesting question. I'll I'll uh, leave it to the professor to, yeah, <laughs> to I, try to address it. So. I think that's a good thing, right? Because, you know, after 9-11, obviously, we had shifts in the way we um, police and, you know, government structures, which are responsible for for policing terrorism, were entirely fixated on Muslim elements. Mm -hmm. But if you look at statistics, there's a great statistic that shows that 63% of mass shootings since 1982 have been committed by white men. However, once you juxtapose that with the fixation of the state with Muslim terrorism— Right. There's a complete neglect. There's a complete overlooking of these, you know, white male, whether they're white supremacists, whether they're anarchists, whether they're militants, uh, whether they're racist and so on. The state is not is not concerned with policing uh, this element of terrorism. However, if we brought that under the, uh, you know, the umbrella of how we conceive of terrorism, then maybe we can do a better job preventing um, the kind of terror action we see in Charleston, we yeah. see in Las Vegas, we see in other places, we see in Aurora, uh, we saw um, in Wisconsin years ago with the attack on the Sikh temple. Why mm-hmm. shouldn't those incidents at least be investigated as potentially be terrorism? I'm not saying let's classify what happened in Las Vegas as a terrorist act, but I'm saying let's not preclude and exclude the possibility that it might be and investigate it thoroughly. Yeah. Thank you very much for the call, Layla and Roy Look. It's a very interesting question that you asked there. Let's go to Jeff in Ann Arbor. Jeff, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, Mr. Henderson. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, You basically touched on all the subjects I wanted to talk about. (laughs) I don't feel that we're making the right distinction between an act of terror and an act of terrorism and a terrorist act and and a terror act because they're both have the same, you know, cause and effect, which is to cause fear and then to affect some change in people's behavior or in our reaction. Yeah. And so I wonder, is it politically or racially motivated that we don't really take a look at, at, at things that way, regardless of who does it and, and what their motivations are? I, my argument would be that they should be treated the same. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting point you raise about the effect right the effect of of an act like this not being different from the effect of an act that has a clear political motivation if you are on the ground at this concert in las vegas if you're watching these things these pictures of this incident come over your computer screen or your television screen if you're thinking about how to talk to your children about something like this, there isn't a distinction. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason that I think that the definitions that we're working with maybe really don't work is because uh, what's more important, the motivation or the effect, uh, Kali Badu? Yeah, I think we should be less fixated on you know analyzing what the definition of terrorism should be. We should leave that to experts um, hopefully objective and even-handed experts who can do so, right? I think the more uh, important concern is prevention, right? How do we go about, you know, thinking about means, um, approaches where we can prevent the kind of mass killing that we see in Las Vegas, uh, that we see, you know, with too many incidents happening across the country here, right? And I think that if we can construct a definite, whether we want to call, you know, have different classifications of terrorism, you know, call one classification Uh, domestic terrorism, where we have a definition that's tied to domestic activity, then have a second definition that's tied to uh, international terrorism, where the actor 
has to have uh, you know some sort of nexus or some sort of connection to a foreign actor. You know why not have flexible and a myriad set of definitions that you know speak to uh, the range of types of terrorism. Terrorism is a monolithic, right? Yeah. It's not a homogenous kind of phenomenon. So why not have a definitional framework that you know permits analysis and then permits uh, prevention of uh, all the different types? Right. And and the point of that is that this is how law enforcement works. That you have to be able to figure out how to respond to things based on on what they are. And if you go through this sort of weird exercise of trying to dissociate acts from their context, I think it makes it it makes it harder to figure out how to stop them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take one more call here. Michael in Howell. Michael, welcome to Detroit today. Thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Um, my, my beef is with this whole thing is why are we so concerned with labeling? There's no not going to be any kind of prosecution. The guy's dead. Um, what if the guy just hated country western music and he was crazy and he had a whole bunch of guns? So we're gonna, we're, all we're doing and talking about right now on the national level, excuse, excuse my GPS, <laughs> uh, we're just worried about labeling it right now where we should be discussing who's at fault and who's at fault is the gun lobby and the gun, gun institutions right now. Right. Thank you. Right. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for that call. Let's go. We actually have time for one more call here. Let's go to Carrie in St. Clair. Carrie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Um, I love your show. I know we don't have much time, but (laughs) I've been listening and I have a quick uh, point to consider. Uh So I know that you guys have been talking about how the effect of this act in Las Vegas and other effects um, is virtually the same as the effect of acts of terrorism. And I totally agree with that. But I wanted to point out that maybe the reason that federal and local law enforcement um, kind of puts terrorism in the specific box of having political or religious motives is because uh, more than just dealing with the exact, you know, the exact situation or event that happened right now, um, terrorism um, speaks to trends in, um, you know, that might be happening in our society, Mm -hmm. groups that are starting, groups that are going to be uh, working together for, for future acts of violence. And I think that that's why there's a distinction between a lone wolf crazy guy who does something horrible that affects us equally right. or terrorist events, you know, that, that, that might be speaking to those trends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carrie, thanks very much for the, for the comment and, and the call. All right. That's going to do it for this segment. Uh, Khalid Bindoon, Associate Professor of Law at University of Detroit. Mercy, as always, thanks for joining thanks us. For having me. Up next, we're going to preview WDET's latest photography and audio exhibit. This time, it focuses on the Metro Detroit Balkan community. Stay with us on Detroit Today.